Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, it's Mother's Day, so happy Mother's Day, and since I will never be a mother, I had a choice between talking about something I will never be and talking about the end of the world. I chose the end of the world. Good choice? No? All right, whatever. So we're going to talk about Noah. It is the next story uh, in our series on his story or lessons from the Old Testament. After his 15-year career in pro basketball, Rick Barry had hit a remarkable 89.9% of his shots from the free throw line. But Barry also had one of the weirdest free throw shots. It was an underhand shot with two hands. Some of you might remember this. Some of you are a little older than me. I think he played when I was probably maybe in, maybe in middle school-ish. So post-Civil War, but not long after that. So he had a granny shot. It was a two-handed free throw shot. You take it between your legs, right between your knees, and you would throw it up 15 feet to the rim, I believe. It's 17, 50. I haven't played basketball in a while. Anyway, he hit 90% of those free throws, and he was a professional basketball player. The stats don't lie. Barry's style seems to work better than the more familiar and cooler-looking traditional free throw shot. And it actually is easier athletically. It has more accuracy. As Barry said, from the physics standpoint, it's a much better way to shoot. Less things go wrong, less things you have to worry about repeating properly in order for it to be successful. In 2008, when Discover Magazine asked a physics professor who agreed, the 45-degree arc angle and the natural backspin both increase the odds of the ball going into the net. If it hits the rim at all, it stops dead. It tends to go in relative to the more common method. Will Chamberlain... Former NBA great who holds the record for the most points scored in one game, 100, once tried it out. Over his career, Chamberlain made a pathetic 54% of his free throws. But on March 2nd, 1962, when he scored his 100 points, he used the granny-style approach and hit 28 of 32 free throws. This is a guy who can't hit a free throw, hit almost all of them. So chances are, for many players, shooting underhand is a much better strategy. Why don't more players use this free throw style? Why did Chamberlain give it up? Rick Barry and Malcolm Gladwell propose a simple answer. Players are too embarrassed to use it. They're too proud. It looks ridiculous. It looks silly, and most players would rather miss shots than look like a granny and score more points. Nobody wants to look silly. Nobody in the world wants to look silly. Nobody wants to be embarrassed, not on free throws, not on fashion trends, not on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, TikTok, and whatever the latest social media platform is that I haven't heard of yet. Frankly, we don't want to look silly or embarrassing at anything. Not on our worldview, not on human sexuality, not on ethics, we want to fit in. Of course we want to fit in. In every way possible. Martin Lindstrom, 
former market research expert, author of Brand Washed, argues that advertisers know something that human beings have in common with birds and termites. Without even thinking about it, we are often controlled by peer pressure. It's not always conscious. For instance, he notes how many bird species rise from a field in complete synchrony as though doing a choreographed dance. Scientists will say that the birds are acting as if they shared one collective brain. Termites function similarly, like one enormous termite brain. In other words, only by observing and mimicking the behavior of its neighbors can a termite figure out what it should be doing. They all just work together, they move together. Lindstrom observes that as consumers, human beings act much the same way. Just like birds and termites, we are wired with a collective consciousness in that we size up what those around us are doing and modify our actions and behaviors accordingly. In a 2008 experiment conducted by researchers at Leeds University, groups of people were instructed to walk aimlessly around a large hall without conversing with one another. But first, the researchers gave just a few of the people detailed instructions on where exactly they should walk. And when they observed the resulting behavior, they found that no matter how large or small the group, everyone in it blindly followed the handful of people who appeared to have some idea of where they were going. As one researcher put it, the research suggests that humans flock like sheep and birds, subconsciously following a minority of individuals. It takes a mere 5% of informed individuals to influence the direction of a crowd of up to 200 people. The other 95% trail along without even being aware of it. There's ample research to show that we instinctively look to the behaviors of others to inform the decisions we make, everything, everything from which way we should walk, to what music we should listen to, to which kind of car we should drive. It seems, in short, that we instinctively believe that others know more about what we want than we do ourselves. We call it peer pressure conformity, fitting in, and it has never been a more powerful force in our culture in the Western world than it is today. And Noah is a great example of an individual who stood literally alone. That's what I want to talk about today, his standalone faith. I want you to grab your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. It's going to be really easy. It's going to be on about page four or five. It's going to be Genesis chapter six. Genesis chapter six. Now, this is a pretty complex uh, chapter. Doesn't look like it at first, but believe me, there are a couple things in here that are really going to be interesting to you. Genesis chapter So this is really the early earth, early mankind. Chapter six, verse one. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God, the question is who are the sons of God, saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh, nevertheless his days shall be 120 years. He's warning that the flood is gonna come in 120 years, that's what he's saying. The Nephilim, now the question is, why are these guys being mentioned? The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I, uh, whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I'm sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You should make the ark with rooms, cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you should make it, the length the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, its height 30 cubits. You should make a window for the ark, finish it to a cubit from the top, set the door of the ark on the side of it, make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life. From under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They'll be male and female, of the birds of their kind, of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible and gather it to yourself, and it shall be for food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Now, there's not just one singular authorial intent here issue. There's probably two that are kind of tracking next to each other. One of them is obviously God's wrath against whatever is going on. And one of them is this person, Noah, who stood out uh, compared to everybody else in the world at that time. First point, though, a young humanity wandered far from God's design. So today we're going to set up the flood story and Noah. We're not going to flood the earth. Nobody's going to get hurt today. Next week, it's not going to be good. Today we're going to set up the flood. Next week we're going to talk about the evidence for the flood that we have, uh, connections to geology, connections to paleontology, connections to history. That will be the week where all of you who have geology backgrounds will be sending me letters telling me I don't know as much as I think I know. I'm looking forward to that. But for now, let's just get caught up to the pre-flood narrative because lots of issues right around here need some explaining. They're difficult, but they're not insurmountable. So first, Genesis 1 and 2, we have creation, God creating the world, and then in chapter 2, it's sort of a parenthetical breakout of God creating man the sixth day, chapter 2. Chapter 3, you have the fall or the entry of sin into the human family. And Adam and Eve are pushed out of the garden. Uh, sin, they don't realize the consequences, how bad it's going to be, but sin has entered the human family. It's going to mean physical and spiritual death, separation from God, disease, etc. The earth will no longer cooperate the way it did originally, the way it was created to. So everything is broken. In chapter 4, you start seeing how that really unfolds. When in the first family, you have this murder, Cain against Abel. And you have the side-by-side -side development there of two kingdoms or two family lines, and that's very intentional. You've got the family line of Abel, which is cut off because he's murdered by Cain, but then Seth becomes the godly line. 
So Cain kills Abel, but Seth carries on uh, this lineage of faith. At the end of chapter four, it says, after Seth and his son, that's when people began to call upon God. And so Seth's line, which would have been Abel's line, uh, but, but Seth's line becomes the godly line. Cain's line, Cain who is a murderer, his lineage leads to a violation of marriage. You see the first polygamy going on there in chapter four, and violence. He's bragging about how if anyone messes with him, he's gonna kill him. And so you see Cain's lineage, he's this worldly individual. Seth's lineage, he's a person who loves and follows God. Now chapter five opens with Seth's line now, this godly line. Opens with Seth, ends with Noah. That's its purpose. It's trying to get us from the godly line to Noah. Now what's interesting, and this is where, actually this is a rather controversial chapter in the scripture. You wouldn't think it is, but it's a genealogy. It's controversial because of the debate about the age of the human family. That's why it's controversial, because a lot of people would like to insert a lot of time in there. What's notable in chapter five is that you see these extended lifespans. Now, I know this is going to sound odd, what I'm going to say here. There's actually some proof for this in other extra-biblical sources as well. Proof that people in ancient times lived lifespans that we could only imagine or dream of. My voice is cracking. It is trip-related. So if I start sounding like I'm a 13-year-old boy changing octaves, it's the trip. So what's going on here is you have these lifespans described that are seven to 900 plus years. And so scholars are like, well, how do you explain this? And so here are a few explanations. Some say it's just symbolic exaggeration to idealize their time, which makes no sense. In other words, they're just denying any literal nature to the text, which is clearly written in historical narrative and genealogy. Some would say it's a representative view and the dates reflect the time that these men's families lived, not them as individuals. That also just doesn't reflect the grammar in the text at all. The best way to look at this is there was something going on in that time in history that just isn't going on anymore. And to interpret it normally, which means lifespans were longer due to environmental and genetic factors. Again, we were designed to live forever. Without sin, we would have been confirmed in holiness in some way and lived forever and never experienced physical death. Death is a result of the fall. So early after the fall, we have these lifespans that seem unusual. What you'll notice is they gradually decrease after the flood from those very extended lifespans to then three to 400, one to 200, and then around 100 years. And that happens over a three or 400 year period in all the genealogies that follow here. So what it means, though, for the early earth is this. A lot of these people were alive at the same time. If you're living a lot longer, then these clans are all living together because people aren't dying nearly as quickly. And assuming any of these dates are, assuming they're accurate, it means the flood would have taken place only about 17 centuries from Adam. So this is not thousands and thousands and thousands of years later. It's about 16 to 1,700 years after the first couple. Now, what's interesting about this is say, I don't know what to do with that. Well, I can tell you a secular source that has the Sumerian king's genealogies, and they similarly have expanded lifestyles in the ancient world, or life cycles, lifespans, 
then a flood story, and decreasing lifespans. Secular literature, which reflects the same thing that you see in Genesis chapter six. So the human family is growing, not a lot of death yet. It's small, comparatively, because it's starting from two people, but it's growing, there's these clans. Genesis chapter six, or five only has about 10 generations listed there. And as it's growing exponentially, what's going on is the light of faith is in danger of going out completely. The Sethites are the godly line. By the time you get to chapter six, you're gonna have one family that still believes the truth. Now, here's where the really fun part of this chapter comes, and this is exciting. And even though I am half asleep, I am excited about this. Genesis chapter six, verses one through four. There was, I I definitely was trained in seminary to view this a certain way, and I increasingly do not agree with what I was taught. The question is, who are the sons of God and the daughters of men? It says, it came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose, and then God says, I'm not gonna strive with, God seems upset about that. So what's going on here? And it seems to be these, there's some kind of tribe or clan of people that come from this that are sort of scary. There's very strong or mighty men that come from this. So what's going on? And God views this as wicked. So here are the potential solutions to this passage, the sons of God and the daughters of men. Some say it's really not connected to this section at all, and it's actually a wrap-up of the genealogy in the prior chapter. Chapter titles didn't come with the inspired word of God. We put them in later based on context and how we divided up certain passages. So there'd be nothing wrong with that. Some say it's just an explanation, a wrap-up of one through five, that mankind was expanding a lot. But if that's the case, why does it mention sons of God, daughters of men? Why does it seem like they're tempted by these beautiful women? Why is there a warning of doom with these marriages? It doesn't seem to be the case. Here is what I was taught. The sons of God are the Sethites. This godly line that we've seen develop in starting back in chapter four. This line that comes from Seth and is gonna end up with Noah. These Sethites now basically went to youth group and they didn't like the girls in their youth group and then they went over to the Canaanite youth group and they're like, those girls are awesome. We're gonna date those girls. We're not dating our clan. I see a guy getting hit over here for some reason. I don't know why. All right, so we're gonna date the girls over in this clan and... They intermarried. And because of those intermarriages, because they were unequal yokes, what usually happens is the unbelieving partner is gonna kind of pull the believing partner away from that. And so what's going on is, is these Sethites intermarried with the Canaanites and it destroyed the line of faith. Now that is a, pause, a possible explanation. It's what most seminaries teach today. And I'm kind of embarrassed to say that I actually don't believe it anymore because I believe something that is just so far out it's gonna blow your mind. And that is the more ancient view of this, which seems to have a lot of New Testament support as well. And that is this, that the sons of God is a normal description of angelic beings. That angelic beings purposing to destroy and thwart 
the seed of the woman that would ultimately rescue humanity that is prophesied just a couple of chapters before. That the seed of the woman will ultimately defeat Satan. That a part of Satan's ploy was to have this group of demonic beings who appear in human form in other cases. We see angels in the Old Testament appearing as humans all of the time. Not all the time, but many times. You'll see it in Genesis multiple times. Left their natural created purpose and united with human women. This is the oldest view. It explains why you've got this class of sort of weird beings called the Nephilim. It explains Jude 6 and 2 Peter. So before you say, Pastor Paul came back from a trip and now he is crazy. It wasn't necessary for the trip to get me to that point, by the way. I want to read something for you. Okay, so this is coming from the best resource I have on Messianic theology in the Old Testament, a guy named Fruchtenbaum. Sounds smart just when you listen to the name, right? Fruchtenbaum, that's a smart guy. He's the one who talks about this, and many others do. He says there's a problem with the word Nephilim that we have in our scriptures. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I want you to know that this is not like a crazy viewpoint. He said in some translations, the word Nephilim had been translated by the word giant, People reading it picture huge human beings, but the word doesn't mean giants, it means fallen ones. The word doesn't refer to giants in the sense of huge beings, but to a race of fallen ones. The reason it was translated as giant is because in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament made around 250 BC, the Jewish scholars translated verse four by the Greek word gigantus, which means titan. Our English word giant comes from this Greek word, gigantus. But what were the titans in Greek mythology? They were part man and part God because they were products of gods and men. When the Jewish scholars in 250 BC translated the word Nephilim to Greek, they used the Greek word for titans because they believed this to be the union, not of two types of human beings, but of angels and humans, which produced a being that was neither angelic nor human. That's what people believed for Jesus about this passage. Now you say, Paul, that's a, little, that's a little far out there. I agree, here's what I can't get over. If it was only that, I would just say, crazy view can't be the case. Here's the problem. Second Peter 2, 4 and 5. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, you say he's talking about angels who sinned. No, he's talking of a specific group. But cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. He's talking about the angels that sinned right before the flood. He's talking about the reason the flood came. Jude 6 and 7 is even clearer. Angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He's talking about the state they have as angelic beings. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. It's, it's a fascinating view. The arguments against that are angels don't marry, they're not sex, they're sexless beings and so on, but that's all based on Matthew twenty two thirty, which doesn't prove that at all. Either way, you've either got the Sethites intermarrying with the Cainites, and you're losing faith on the earth because they're dating the wrong set of girls from the wrong youth group, or you've got the destruction of the human family in some way by angelic beings, God's world was at risk. He had created man for fellowship with himself, 
There's little chance of that coming to fruition now. Faith is dying out in mankind. It's either the Sethites with the Canaanites or it's this other more bizarre explanation. But either way, God was done with it and he basically goes to Noah and he says, I really want to do over. What I have created is not working. I have to destroy it. Which is the problem with creating free beings. They're free to walk away. And God's concern was that there would be no influence for good in his creation anymore. He says it this way. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. He was sorry he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from animals to creeping things to birds of the sky. I'm sorry I've made them. You say, well, those are like anthropopathisms. That's just God feeling things we would feel. Well, do you know why those describe God that way? Because it's the best way to help us understand what he feels. The young humanity had wandered from his design. God had created man for fellowship with himself. He wanted it in the garden with Adam and Eve. We walked away. And now in this growing, budding humanity, there is one family that still believed. Second point, the flood was about wrath and love, a unique combination of divine qualities and attributes. The flood is a real faith challenge for a lot of people, and, and I kind of get why. For some of you, it's going to be, you know, the geology, the paleontology, and trying to fit that into your, you know, sort of timeline of, of how you view the world and the universe, but for a lot of people, actually, it's not that. Because, you know, we can agree about some things in geology and paleontology and still love Jesus together. The greater challenge, especially for all the young people, is the theology. It's the theology. It's God's nature here. A lot of people look at the flood and they're like, you know, if God would actually do this, I don't want to follow a God who's capable of that. And they struggle with a God who, who could destroy his creation, who would judge something in this life rather than in eternity the way he did. A God who has a willingness to go beyond perhaps their tolerance for justice. And so people look at this passage and they're like, I can't handle that God. Now, Genesis 6 is not a well-developed theological treatise. It's not intended to be. It's historical narrative. It's written as history. So it's not like Romans where it's written as theology, making theological points. Here, all it says is the earth was corrupt in the sight of God. The earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth. It was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. All the way through 18, he talks to Noah about what he wants to build because he's just going to rescue him. So how do we see a God we can live with and believe in as he destroys his creation? What do you do with that God? What do you do with the severity of the God that you follow? And now some of you want to say, well, he's not that way anymore. The Old Testament has a lot of this. The New Testament doesn't. That's just the worst theological analysis I've ever heard and hear from a lot of Christians. It's terrible. God is the same God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's a difference in the nature of the kingdom. But do you know who popularized the word hell? Jesus of Nazareth, not the Old Testament. There is a severe side to God, which is hard for many of us. 
How do you reconcile that? Well, let's go to Hollywood. In the 2008 film Taken, Liam Neeson plays Brian Mills, a former CIA operative who determines to track down his teenage daughter. She's been kidnapped by human traffickers while she's on a trip with a girlfriend in France. How many of you have seen this movie? I know some of you are wondering, can I raise my hand? Is this a trick? Are they taking names? Okay, it's not. I can't give it the five-star pastoral approval, but it's an awesome guy movie, isn't it? Rescue the daughter. Okay. So his daughter's been kidnapped by human traffickers in France. In one gripping scene, he talks to his daughter's abductor after he's retrieved a cell phone. So the kidnapper is in the room. He finds the cell phone she's been on, and it's still on, and dad's on the line. And Liam Neeson states his clear intent to seek and save his daughter, and he says to the abductor who's on the line after he's just nabbed his daughter, I don't know who you are, and I don't know what you want. You know, this sounds better with my hoarse voice. If it won't squeak, we'll be in good shape. I can tell you I don't have money, but what I do have are a very particular set of skills, skills that I've acquired over a very long career, skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I won't look for you, I won't pursue you, but if you don't, I will look for you, I will find you, and I will kill you. The abductor says, good luck. That's the end of the conversation. And then Liam Neeson spends, he's got 96 hours and he's tracking down his daughter and he's using all his spy abilities to do that. Earlier in the film, as the storyline set up, we, we become familiar with his earlier career. He's in the CIA and his choice to change his career path in order to reestablish a relationship with his daughter. He loves his daughter and he and his wife had broken up. He was estranged from his daughter. So it's clear that he's willing to pay any cost to gain back some of the time and trust that he lost with his only daughter. And as far as he's concerned, Everything he knows, his training, his skills, time put on the job are now focused on one thing and that's finding his daughter and bringing her home. And the rest of the movie is action-packed as he urgently and skillfully weaves his way through language barriers, governmental red tape, crime lords, elaborate hierarchies, and he finds his daughter. And after dispatching, which means killing, numerous thugs and villains, Neeson finally finds his daughter on a yacht sold as a prostitute for a wealthy businessman. He rescues her and she collapses into her father's arms as she says, Daddy, you came for me. Bloody, beaten, but triumphant. He holds his daughter and he says, I told you I would. You want to understand the connection between love and wrath? That's a great illustration of it. God is like that. He will take drastic action to preserve what he loves in this world and what he values most. And that is the image of God in humanity. But he's not capricious and unfair in doing it. And there are a lot of examples of this in the Old Testament. One of them, even if you follow Israel's journey, you see this. Remember, Israel's supposed to get the promised land from God. And, and at first it seems a little unfair. Well, why should God give the promised land to Israel? Because other people are there right now. In Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, he's going to give him Palestine or the promised land. He's going to displace others. But what he says there is, it's not going to happen now because the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. In other words, if I let you do this right now, it would not be fair to the peoples that are there, but it will be someday. And eventually those people are 
committing child sacrifice, temple prostitution, etc., etc., etc. In fact, in Leviticus, when it describes what's going on in that land when Israel invaded, it says the land was vomiting the people out. It was so corrupt. And then God told them to drive them out. But God loves his image in humanity. And the flood was all about getting an outcome that would preserve faith on earth, that would allow humanity to be all that God wanted it to be. It was judgment in this life for what would have happened in eternity, and it seems awful to us. But it was so that we would have a world with faith and relationship with God. Noah was that line of faith. Third point, Noah was the one man holding his family to God's standard in a corrupt world. You have multiple verses that attest to Noah's character. Chapter 5, I love this because, you know, remember the, uh, God has promised that there would be a Savior that would come through the seed of the woman? Chapter 5 seems to give a little commentary on the expectation that this would be Noah. Chapter 5, verse 28, Lamech lived 182 years and he became the father of a son. He called his name Noah, saying, listen to what Lamech thinks about Noah. This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. He's looking back to Genesis 3, the curse on the earth. And he's saying, Noah, Noah might be the rescuer. I don't know if Noah had multiple names. A lot of times people would get a name after their character was displayed. It might be that Noah came into this world. He was such a great young man. They named him Noah after the fact saying, this could be the one. This could be the rescuer that was prophesied. This is the seed of the woman who's going to rescue us. That's the kind of character that Noah had. It was obvious. Verses 6 through 8 of chapter 6. The Lord was sorry he had made man. He said, I'm going to blot out man, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 1. You alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. Imagine standing alone. Alone. There's no church community. I mean, we can all do the granny shot together, right? You know, there's enough of us in here. You say, well, if Pastor Paul can do the granny shot, I can do the granny shot. We can all be a little embarrassed about what we believe following this Jesus of Nazareth who's pretty narrow in today's culture. Noah was alone. No church community, no connecting group, no other believing family. He is faith on this planet. All that's left. He's shooting the granny shot when nobody else shoots it. Then God told him to build an ark. Thank you, Jesus, for that one. Build an ark. Do that in a public way. We'll try doing it privately. No, I want you to build an ark, big boat. And do it, you know, where he was probably was not exactly right next to the seashore either. So God gives them a 120-year warning that encompassed God's date for the flood from its first pronouncement based on other events that happened in Noah's life like the birth of his children and them getting wives and so on. Most scholars believe that the ark was probably a 55 to 75-year project out of that 120 years. 55 to 75 years by yourself on high ground building a boat and explaining it. Not just a boat like I'm going fishing, like a super yacht. 
near no water. That had to be tough. That had to be tough. He's doing the granny shot all by himself. And what's all that wood for, Noah? Going fishing? What's a flood? You know, we're on high ground here, chief. Hope that's a rewards card because you're buying a lot of lumber these days. 2 Peter 2.5, in case you're wondering, was Noah quiet about this? 2 Peter refers to Noah as a preacher of righteousness. He didn't just choose to live it quietly, like, hey, let's go behind the house and put up the hoop and do the granny shot. Noah was out there. He was ridiculed. He was mocked. For 55 to 75 years, he built a boat because God told him to. He wasn't silent. He warned his friends. He stood alone. That's character. Character is who you are when nobody else stands with you, when you're alone. Sometimes it means you're crazy. Sometimes it's just character. I want to close with two apps. First, a God without anger and wrath is a God without love. You know, we really struggle with this, and, and I think we all do intuitively. How do we deal with God's wrath? But you have to have God's wrath to have a loving God. Makes perfect sense. Skeptics, and even the skeptic inside of us, if we're honest, gets upset when God allows evil. I am not happy with God sometimes. And it's okay. I mean, the psalmist wasn't either. You have permission to not be happy with God. The lightning won't strike. I'm not happy with God when I look around the world and all that happens. I wish God would intervene and just clean stuff up until it's me who's doing the wrong thing. We get upset when God allows evil, don't we? We, we wonder, where is he? You know, are the deists right? Did he just sort of put all this in order and, and is too removed from it? Don't we want God to be more interactive with his creation? We all get bothered by that. What's interesting is the skeptic gets upset when God allows evil, that the skeptic gets upset when God judges it as well. God can't catch a break. If he intervenes, he's in trouble. If he doesn't intervene, he's in trouble. Not just by the non-believing world. That's the Christian world too. We all struggle with this. But God's love and wrath go together. Miroslav Volf, a Christian theologian from Croatia, says he used to reject the concept of God's wrath, thought the idea of an angry God was barbaric, unworthy of a God of love. But then his country went through war, terrible atrocities against their neighbors and countrymen. He wrote a book, his new understanding of the necessity of wrath. He said, my last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war of the former Yugoslavia from where I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled, some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I couldn't imagine God not being angry. I think of Rwanda, the last decade, the past century, 800,000 people hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators like a grandfather? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? 
Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because he is love. Because he cares about the image of God in people who are being treated unjustly. God is loving and wrathful, both. And finally, Noah is the ultimate example of living above the pressure of the world. Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world, don't be pressed into its mold. Shooting the granny shot isn't easy. Noah did it. This is a really sad story about Mark Twain, great writer. So from what I can tell, Mark Twain was not a Christian, nor did he claim to be when he began courting Olivia Langdon. Back in Twain's day, a man typically had to get permission from a woman's parents before marrying her. Mark Twain had a problem. Olivia Langdon came from a Christian family, wouldn't allow their daughter to marry somebody like him. To overcome this obstacle, he took on the guise of a spiritual seeker who needed the support and prayers of Olivia's family to clean up his life. Twain, influenced by Olivia's prodding, presumably converted. He wrote to his mother after his engagement to Olivia, my prophecy was correct. So basically he said he became a Christian to get her to marry him. Olivia's family was convinced he was a Christian, permitted the marriage. Was it an illusion? One scholar insists that Twain was a man in love, wooing a woman he hoped to marry. His religious feelings at that time, expressed in love letters to Olivia, disappeared as soon as the wedding was over. After their wedding, he ridiculed Olivia's beliefs and devotion. Soon her optimism began to wane and her fervent faith cooled. Eventually she forsook religion altogether and a deep sorrow overtook her life. Mark Twain loved her and never meant to hurt her, but he had broken her spirit. And he said, Livy, if it comforts you to lean on your faith, do so. He felt apologetic for helping to destroy her faith and told her, go ahead, believe if you want to. She said, I cannot, I don't have any faith left. He often wished he could restore her faith, hope, and optimism, but it was too late. The reason I told that story instead of a general story about the culture is this. The pressure in our lives now is so close. People disagree so close to us. It's family, it's friends, we're shooting the granny shot in front of people who disapprove of us. And it's hard, it's hard. The world is a constant pressure to find love and acceptance by fitting in. As Christians, this isn't where we're from. It's not our home. We're never gonna truly fit in. We all shoot the granny shot because we follow a God who we believe is true, even when the world says it's not. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this example of Noah. We see in his life an incredible character, an ability to simply stand by himself in a culture that did not believe. We don't know all the details about what was exactly going on in the world at that time, but we know that you wanted faith to survive, and the only way you saw that it could would be to almost start over. Thank you for Noah. Thank you for his example. Help us to be like him with standalone faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. 
If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.